I sure was surprised to see in the boat that I'm speaking this morning. <laughs> uh, it's not true. I've been preparing for a while. I have no excuse. We're continuing our, uh, our study this morning in the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. And so to uh, kind of set the stage for that, of course, I want to look back in the Old Testament at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but just what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is uh, Saul has uh, been rejected by God, ultimately as being king, and God tells the prophet Samuel that he wants him to go up to Bethlehem, and he's going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king. And uh, so, so Samuel goes up to Bethlehem, and uh, uh, Jesse and his sons come in, and he sees Eliab. And, uh, and Samuel looks at him, and he's like, wow, this is a, what a fine young buck he is, right? I'm paraphrasing. But uh, he's a, he's a fine-looking man who makes a big impression on Samuel. And Samuel's thinking, well, this must be the one. But the Lord tells him, no, I've already rejected him. And then he says this to him. This is uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But, God, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, if I was to suggest what I see at least as being kind of a, a unifying theme in the Sermon on the Mount, it's just that. The, the Lord looks on the heart. You know, when Jesus was giving the this, this Sermon on the Mount, it, it, unlike a lot of sermons, you know, typically we try to have speakers sort of stay with a, a relatively narrow theme, not throw too much stuff in. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, there are so many different aspects that are considered there. Uh, it's, it's almost mind-boggling. But the Lord Jesus, as he lays all that out, what he's really doing is he's speaking to a lot of misconception that had grown up around the things that the Lord had said. There were different uh, religious sects at that time, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but there were others who kind of had their own take, their own spin on a lot of the way that we should live for God, their own interpretation, if you will of uh, scripture. There was also additional writings that had grown up uh, around those things. They were interpretations by rabbis of how things should be looked at. So there was this, this whole body of uh, ideas about how we should look at God and how we should look at the scriptures that had grown up. And really what Jesus was doing was just going back. As I said, you know, the Lord was saying to Samuel, this is how the Lord looks at things. He looks at the heart. And Jesus is very much drawing the people back to really appreciate that. Uh, that as opposed to teachings, maybe they were being uh, indoctrinated into that where it's, well, it's about making sure that you tithe every little thing. You've got to be really careful about that. It's about making sure you're at the, all the meetings, that you keep these festivals, whatever it was. There's all kinds of things that were, people were supposed to do, all kinds of activities. But Jesus is emphasizing throughout the Sermon on the Mount that what the Lord looks at is the heart. If you think, for instance, some of the sections we've looked at already uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. He's really speaking very directly about not what people were doing so much as where their hearts were at, what they valued, right? Right? Similarly, you know, when he speaks even about 
uh, out-of-bounds activities. He says, you know, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. He says, but I say to you, if you've looked at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her where? In your heart already. So that's, again, just as a preface to what we're going to look at this morning, that's a really common emphasis throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And I think very much what Jesus was trying to do is return people back to seeing God and who he is and how he looks at things in a much clearer light. So we're going to look this morning at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. I'm going to go ahead and read through those here. This is from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Reads this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So you see there, you know, there's, there's kind of three distinct different ideas Jesus is expressing, even in just those few verses. As I said, he just packs so many different things into the Sermon on the Mount. So but let's look at them individually here. Uh, the first section, verses 19 through 21, uh, Jesus, on the face of it, uh, well, he says this. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures uh, on earth. And he, he contrasts that with, but do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so just superficially, it's like, well, he seems to be giving advice on where we should store our treasures up, right? It's the location that's in view. Uh, and he goes on to explain why. He says, well, if you store up your treasures on earth, uh, your treasures may well be attacked by various things. He said, this is where moths eat things and rust destroys is how the uh, New American Standard has it. Really, the underlying Greek there where it says rust destroys is more general. It's it just, it's about things being eaten away. You know, so, so certainly one possible uh, explanation of things being eaten away, we're very familiar with rust eating away our cars here in New York State from all the salt on the roads, right? Uh, rust is one of those natural processes that eat things away. But if you think about it, virtually every material thing in this world is subject to a host of different either natural pests that can attack them uh, or natural processes that attack them. You know, we struggle with our houses sometimes just to make sure that we keep uh, ants or other insects from eating away at things. And we got to make sure we keep the water out. We keep it painted because the, the water can cause the wood to rot. You know, there's a host of those type of things uh, that attack material things in this world. Things are constantly in a process, really, of being broken down. 
And Jesus is saying, well, you know, if you're storing up material things, obviously that's what he has in view here, right? Material goods, physical things. If you're storing those things up on, on earth, they're going to be subject to that. But not only that, if that weren't bad enough, he said, you've got to watch out for something else too. He says where thieves break in and steal. Other people are one of the threats for your material goods you have stored up on earth. Other people that want those things that instead of uh, asking you for them, would rather just break in and take them for themselves. So, you know, at first glance, it seems what Jesus is emphasizing is just, you know, all the dangers of uh, having stuff stored up on earth, which, of course, are we're familiar with that. Uh, but he says, so store up your treasures in heaven. But, of course, what's implicit here is he's not talking about storing up your material goods in heaven, is he? You know, where is heaven anyway? It's not like he's recommending, you know, instead of here, no store it here. He's talking about not just a different place to store up your treasures, but different treasures altogether, isn't he? Something that's not material. And it's because it's not material that it's not subject to any of those other threats that our, our uh, physical goods are. But, you know, then he goes on in the next line and he really makes much more explicit what the point of the matter is here. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's interesting the order he puts that in too, right? He talks about wherever it is that you've got something you feel is valuable stored up. That's where your heart, that's where your mind, that's where your attention, your concerns are going to be drawn to. That's true, isn't it? Anytime you have something that you feel is valuable stored up somewhere, uh, you want to take care of it. You're cons- and the more valuable it is, the more you're concerned about it. You know, if you have uh, $10 in the bank, you're not all that concerned about what interest rates do, right? You know, if you have $100,000 invested in the stock market, you're a lot more worried about how that's going to do, right? That's, that's just you know, normal stuff to us. Where we have things that we think are valuable, well, that's where our attention and concerns are drawn to. You know, in uh, 1 John chapter 2, John really addresses this same topic uh, quite directly. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes this. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John, as he writes here, he goes right to the point of the heart, doesn't he? He says, do not love the world. Don't set your heart and your affections on the world. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, the things, he, of course, he's talking about here aren't material things, but he mentions the, the lust of the flesh, the, the physical desires that we have that we want satisfied. The lust of the eyes, seeing things, being attracted to them, wanting them because we've seen them. And the boastful pride of life. You know, how we want to be viewed. The things that we want to accomplish. You know, it's common in our uh, culture today for people to talk about a bucket list, right? All the things I want to do in my life. We have aspirations for what it is that we would like to have happen in our lives, the things that we want to get. You know, it's interesting here that uh, the way John expresses this, he says, for all these things don't come from the Father, 
but from the world. You're apt sometimes perhaps to mistake the provision of God as being something that that lends itself to all these things. If, If we have these things, well, that's because God has blessed us. You know, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount makes clear that God is concerned that we have the things that we need, that they're provided for. And he says, don't be anxious on that account, right? Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. But that's not the same thing as our attentions and our hearts being drawn out to all the things around us in the world and wanting those things. And if we get them thinking, well, that's because God is good. John says, You know, those things, those desires that you have, he says, that's not what comes from the Father. He says, that comes from the world. So you're really going in a different way when you do that, right? And that's what Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount, is that where we're storing up those treasures, the things that we value, well, that's where our hearts are going to be drawn out to. So we might ask, well, if that's the case, let me take a sip of water here. What does that look like then to store up your treasures in heaven instead of on earth? You know, because again, we're dealing with, you know, as Jesus uses this language, obviously it's kind of figurative and metaphorical, right? It's contrasting physical things with heavenly things. Let me suggest to you, you know, uh, one of the way, one of the things that that looks like. You know, uh, David asked me the question, you know, how long I had been here, and I, I had just thought about that recently. Gosh, it's been, in September, it'll be 30 years since I first walked through the door at uh, then uh, Congress Avenue Bible Chapel. And I was greeted uh, warmly by Rick Miles, a, a wonderful brother in the Lord. And the meeting was good. I was a young believer. I had just actually driven up from Virginia on Friday that week and attended for the first time on a Sunday morning. And uh, was a young believer, had been saved a few months. So it was still very much in the process of trying to, to get my bearings as a, uh, an adult who had come to know Jesus Christ. And um, so I, I attended the meeting, and the meeting was okay. It was just like, well, I don't know, this place is all right. And then I was invited uh, by Ruth Roger to come over to her home, uh, her and Harvey's home, after the meeting for Sunday dinner. And I got there, and it wasn't just me. There was about 25, I think. That was a typical number, probably, of young adults that Ruth and Harvey would entertain for Sunday dinner at their home virtually every Sunday. And that wasn't something that was... So so again, there was an occasional Sunday, I think, where we weren't on, but most Sundays you had us college and career-age people over to your home, and, uh, and that went on for years and years and years. And... Along the way, in the course of that, uh, Ruth shared with me one time, she was diagnosed with cancer and going through treatment and all the, the difficulties, just the physical suffering that attends that treatment. And so, of course, in the midst of that, she didn't pray, well, Lord, I, I, please give me a break. Just the opposite. Ruth prayed, Lord, please help me to keep going. I want to keep being able to have these dinners and serving these young people. Please help me to keep going. You know, it certainly wasn't because she was storing up her treasures on earth that that's what she was asking the Lord for, was it? It was because all of these young adults, including myself, who were there, she was so invested in wanting us to know the Lord, to grow in fellowship together, to be established in Him. 
that even in the midst of such physical difficulty and all the stresses just of, can you think of the logistics, you know, if you feed a family of feeding 25 ravenous young adults every Sunday. But that's what she and Harvey did so faithfully. Well, where was her heart? Right where her treasure was and is today. You know, and I'm, of course, I appreciate the opportunity to single out my friend Ruth just to relay that uh, and to say thank you. But, you know, I'm very aware that so many of you here are examples of that same behavior. It's not just Ruth, it's so many of you here that are examples to me of what that looks like. You know, you are liable in the pew next to you to have somebody who is a very good example of what it looks like to be storing up your treasures in heaven. To say what's on earth right now is not what's of value to me. Accumulating goods is not what I'm about. I want to serve the Lord and I want to serve others in his name. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be, says the Lord Jesus. He goes on in uh, verse 22 and 23 with a little bit different uh, teaching here. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You know, I was uh, meditating on these verses. What I try to do if I have to speak is just print the verses out, read through them, really just try to immerse myself in thinking about them as many weeks ahead as I can just to let the Word work on me. And uh, along the way in that process, uh, back at about the beginning of the year, John Cannon played a video for the worldview study that we have going on right now. And uh, as the, uh, that video played, I thought how appropriate the words were that uh, the speakers there were sharing. Let me read to you a couple of excerpts of that, of what they stated. They said, worldview is a set of basic assumptions about reality. A worldview is like a lens through which you see things, and you're not really aware of the lens, you're only aware of the things you see. So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which you're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. So everyone has a worldview. And I think it is the grid that frames the nature of reality for you and the judgments that you make for yourself and others in life. God wants us to see the world the way he has told us it is. Everything begins with an infinite personal God, and the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. And you see how that lines up with what Jesus is speaking of there. He says, you know, your eye is the lamp of the body, as he puts it. It's almost as always picturing, you know, for for light to get inside of you, it has to come in through your eye, right? That's the portal. Of course, you know, the, the ancients didn't really think that the eye was that way, much less the Lord Jesus who created us, right? It's not like it's just an open window where light can get in, so we want to just make sure it's not covered up. He's using, again, figurative language here to describe that. And really to describe not just physical light entering inside of our bodies, but spiritual light. You know, the Apostle Paul 
wrote on that subject to uh, the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul really uh, uses great language to explain the same concept. 2 Corinthians 4 in verse 3, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, covered over, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you see what Paul's getting at here. You know, the glory of God has been revealed in the gospel. And yet for so many people, you know, he said a veil is lies over it. It's covered over to them. He says, because the God of this age, Satan himself has blinded them so that they can't perceive it. As Jesus said, if your eye is bad, that light can't get in. He says, though the glory of God is revealed right in front of them, but they're just like, I, I just don't see it, right? And that's Jesus' point. How great is that darkness? How great is that darkness when the Son of Man was on earth? preaching these very same things. And yet people are just like, ah, isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy, right? It's the son of God incarnate. And we likewise so easily don't appreciate the glory of God when it's revealed to us. But Paul, of course, says exactly how the Lord is revealing it. It's not coming in through our eye. What does he say? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Just in the book of Genesis, right? Let there be light. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true for you this morning if you've trusted in Christ? He's the one who's shown in your heart that this gospel message that maybe you had heard before that I certainly had, and it didn't make any sense to you. It couldn't come in. You couldn't see it. But now you can. In fact, you can't unsee it once you've trusted in Christ, right? That's what he's done. He's revealed his light in our hearts. Again, the heart, right? Well, we need to speed along here. The last section of this uh, section of verses, verse 24, single verse, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You know, then Jesus, of course, here isn't speaking just of multitasking, right? He's not just saying, you know, can you keep all the balls in the air? The language he uses is very explicit. You can't serve two masters. You know, the relationship of a master to a bondservant or a slave. He says you, that can't be divided to more than one master. You know, and as I was uh, 
considering these verses, I think the example that came home to me the most is just a little bit earlier on in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted or tested in the wilderness by Satan. And the third temptation looks like this, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You have to choose. All the glory of things that are on earth and setting your heart upon those are simply at odds with serving the living God. I also was reminded of a slightly different picture later on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. It says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. What a contrast there, huh? Satan takes the Lord Jesus up on a high mountain, and he shows him all the glory of the world and its kingdoms, its attainments. And we find glory in those things, don't we? Google News is just full of it. And Satan says to him, just bow down to me, serve me, and I'll give you all of this. The Son of Man takes his disciples up on a high mountain and shows him the glory of himself, transfigured into light. But again, beloved, isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus has done with each of us? Hasn't he, if you've trusted in him, hasn't he enlightened you to the glory of who he is? Oh, just like with the disciples, it's not that Jesus was transfigured into light every moment when they were walking with him. And our hearts oftentimes don't feel like we're as clear on where the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ as we walk with him day to day. But if we take a step back, we know darn well in our hearts that that is the case. And God's claim is exclusive. He says you can't serve the glory of this world. You can't pursue wealth as being where your heart's set and serve me and worship me at the same time. You have to choose. So then, you know, you see that there's some kind of consistency between these three different sections, three seemingly different ideas that the Lord Jesus expresses here in these verses. But working backwards, it looks something like this. We can't serve two masters. But the one who has revealed his glory to us is the one that we need to bow down to and serve. He's the one who's shown his light in our hearts. Right? He's the one who's opened our eyes. As a blind man once said, I was blind, but now I see. That's the one who's called us to forsake storing up our treasures on earth where they're going to get eaten away anyway or stolen. And instead says, listen to me. Store up your treasures in heaven 
where they're not going to be attacked by those things. And where we will receive, we're told a rich reward. That's uh, Jesus' words actually almost at the end of the book of Revelation. It says this in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. How good is that, beloved? Time is done. The food is out on the table out there. Let's give thanks for all of this to our Lord. Father, we pause before you and we thank you. Father, we thank you this morning that if we've trusted in you, you have revealed to us the glory of your Son, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the face of our Redeemer, the one who's bled and died for our sins. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for your goodness in revealing yourself to us. When our eye was bad, you were the one that opened it. Father, we just ask you to help us as we wrestle in this world. We are attracted, Father, by our flesh, by our eye, by the glories that are around us, to be led away by those things. Father, help us to cleave to your spirit. Father, to store up our treasures, as your Son said to us, in heaven. Father, where they're beyond attack and where he looks to reward us for the things that we've done by his own grace. Father, help us in this, we pray. And Father, we thank you for this food that we're about to enjoy as well. And we ask you, Father, to bless our time of fellowship according to your spirit together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.